happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 280 on January 11th, 2023. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Executive Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight from the East Coast, good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am excellent, and uh, we'll talk about this, but I use the ChatGPT, uh, a free plugin that'll summarize videos, and um, I didn't have a title, so obviously I need to, maybe I need to say my title at the beginning of the show, Um, but I am a media literacy and computer science teacher, a middle school teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina at Providence Day School, and wow, wow. for a while, we were, were sort of the, the tech correction, um, the big tech uh, hand-wringing show. Now I feel like we're the AI show. But uh, anyway, it's just new, new things every week. So what, what are we going to do? Allegedly, we're going to talk about AI. Wait, we have to do a weather check-in. Um, are the rivers of moisture affecting you in Montana? That There was something like since Christmas, they said seven or eight. What are these called? Something special rivers? Atmospheric rivers. Atmospheric rivers have hit California. So are those affecting big sky country? Um, not that I can tell here, although the weather, uh, well, the weather's been increasingly weird for the last 15 years uh, in, in Montana, particularly in western Montana. But right now it's cold outside. It gets just above freezing during the day. But if it snows or there's sometimes uh, freezing rain at night, then it's just an, an ice bath here in the morning. And as an example, this morning I went out to my car um was running a little bit late still made it to work on time but i noticed that uh there was a about a half inch thick sheet of ice on my windshield so i had to wait for that to 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 unthaw i wasn't even able to chip it off uh with uh my car scraper but yeah the weather's pretty weird here uh certainly um uh chilly outside um but not as bad as it was uh four or five weeks back so nice all right well we're we're pretty mild it's uh Got down to freezing one day this week, but otherwise it's just been about freezing and we're got up like 62 today. So pretty lovely. What are we going to do tonight besides the weather check-in and nice sunset there, by the way. So yes, thank you very much. Well, the Edit Situation Room is a podcast where we take a look at headlines throughout the kind of techosphere and elsewhere and kind of shoot them through the education prism, hoping to bring some insight from, from uh, both my and Wes's background. Uh, in hopes to, to help you think through some of the, the technology issues of the day as they relate to education. Tonight we have links. Uh, we're inevitably going to talk about AI, and um, I feel a little bad that that I've become kind of one note about this. In fact, uh, my staff at work has started to mock me a little bit in the amount I talk about AI during meetings and um, uh, 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 during uh, throughout the day when I'm sharing things that I kind of run into. But I do think it's going to have a fundamental and and and, and uh, dramatic impact on on education, but AI will be part of our our strategy tonight. We have some Google news, some privacy news, some security news, inc- including some breaking news about my own uh, security strategies. Uh, some tech correction and social media news, some connectivity news, 
um, copyright and licensing news. And we managed to find two articles on that this week. And then we'll end this week uh, with our geeks of the week. Although I will tell you that one of them might make it into the AI conversation based on how uh, freaking cool uh, uh, that discovery is. So Dr. Fryer, is there something you'd like to talk about before we jump down the AI rabbit hole? Uh, and I'm scared that we're going to uh, 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 turn this podcast into this week in AI education, but is there a topic you'd like to start on first before we, we head down AI land? You bet. Um, let's, uh, I, I think we definitely need to talk some CES and Google, but let's do, uh, let's do a little security, uh, tech correction. I think, yeah, let's, let's hit the AI stuff later because we know we'll, we can talk for a whole show. We haven't really talked about the last pass breach, have we? Have we talked about that? Nope. In fact, that's, that's article number three on the list this week. And, yeah. uh, there was, uh, well, this is going back to, I think it was September, or October that there was, uh, supposedly, um, some kind of security issue uh, over at LastPass. And for those of you unaware of LastPass, it's a password manager. It, it was our recommended password manager. Um, I like it so much that I pay for it. In fact, in November, I re-upped it for another year. And as it turns out, um, there was some kind of security breach at, at LastPass. And at first, um, they just thought that someone had got in and, and monkeyed around with systems. And, um, it, there's a lot of drama around this because some people think that, uh, the LastPass folks actually obscured the true nature of the hack, but apparently, um, many people's, uh, info and their password vault data were all, is also now supposedly in hackers' hands. And the reason why this is interesting is that, um, uh, my understanding of, of the situation is that while your vault is encrypted and can only be unencrypted with your password, right? So that it, they don't store, they don't even have access to your passwords at LastPass. The reason why this is interesting is because apparently they store the websites in which the, the list of websites in which you uh, have uh, 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 passwords in your vault in plain text, which means that hackers can essentially judge how good your um, uh, your account might be worth uh, for them to actually put on tools to try to um, change your um, or I'm trying to get into your your to your uh, password locker and um, I will tell you that that's scary to me um, you know I'm not sure if my account per se would be all that valuable but I do have financial accounts and by the way I spent a lot of time last week in changing all the passwords um, also I have uh, a number of school passwords in there that I also changed and, and did nice password at refresh, but security professionals, um, kind of in mass of that. I, I, I looked for a counter article on this a couple of days ago, hoping to balance it out. Um, but I couldn't find a security professional that say you should stick with LastPass. Everyone's abandoning it, it seems, and going somewhere else. And my choice is one password, uh, which was one of the uh, password managers recommended by Steve Gibson on this, this week in, um, uh, this week in security or no, security, security, security now. now. Thank you. The security now podcast. And, um, um, it was one on his list, uh, where he talked about the merits of other options here. There are a lot of, of, of password managers. Uh, some seem better than others. Um, it was a relatively seamless transition because I was able to export my passwords from LastPass and then import them into one password. So I wasn't starting from scratch again. And I have about 400 passwords, uh, sitting in, in my LastPass. 
Um, and I painstakingly updated a ton of them when I first moved to LastPass. And um, I'm now random, random generated, you know, 10, 15, 20 character passwords on anything that's worth anything um, in my system. But um, it was a pain to move, but I purchased uh, purchased a, a professional plan on it. So I, I have that security now. And I was convinced by my own research that one password was the way to go. But this is the crux of the problem, right? Like that's, uh, you know, security is, is a huge deal. Someone gets a hold of your passwords. It's not that hard to do some pretty bad stuff to you personally. Um, or if you're in a professional context, do something, uh, poor there. But the bottom line is, is that even when you're doing things right, and I would argue I was doing things right, that it's still software we're dealing with and it can have holes in it. There can be security issues. And the bottom line is, is that um, I was caught up in this and I hope that it has no grander impact to me, but I don't really know for sure. Absolutely. And just what, what you said was from the articles I read, the important takeaway, um, the, the hackers don't just immediately have everyone's password, but they can use brute force techniques. And, and like you said, because the um, website names and URLs and other pieces of data are in the clear. They can basically assess the high value accounts that they like to target and then they'll be able to target them. So if you have anything in LastPass that, um, you know, you, you, you value, uh, in addition to migrating from the site, you need to change the, the, the passwords. So yeah. thankfully the password managers do make that a little easier. And I'm just, I'm still amazed how many folks do not really use a password manager and even know about them and how important they are. This is really important. Even though LastPass has been breached, and like we said, there's caveats here because it's not like everybody's passwords on all accounts are on the dark web immediately, but it has been breached. The password and security professionals still say that a password manager is our best option. So there is this whole thing about putting all your eggs in one basket um, that's why you want to choose a good basket, um, and it is a dynamic situation. So it's I'm glad you're able, uh, Jason, to you know export and import and save yourself a lot of time with that process. But um, I think that you know anybody listening to the show, if you listen to it for any length of time, you've heard us recommend password managers, and we really this is incumbent upon all of us, I think, to sort of be the evangelists for for password security uh, and for digital security and to try and model that ourselves and to try to talk to, to, to family members. Um, you know, my, uh, I lost my mother on uh, Christmas Eve uh, this year. And uh, you know, one of the things that I had fortunately done with mom and dad a few months um, before that was get iPhone lock codes and the passwords to their password manager. One of the things that happened while I was there uh, was that my dad had not updated on his phone the version that he was using of a different password manager. And when iOS updated, it just stopped working. Well, fortunately, we were able to work through that uh, and recover it and get him updated. But it was uh, it was an example of how this stuff is dynamic. You do need to update your software. And there are things that can happen that will force you to do that. Um, but it's just, you know, whether it's aging parents or our spouse, ourselves, these are our the, kids, grandkids. These are critical conversations to have so much of our lives now, you know, the, the finances, uh, the insurance, so many of those things hinge on digital credentials. So let's be safe out there, folks. We uh, definitely um, 
you know, try to have a, have a big kind of focus on security. And, um, I think that's probably among the, the most important things that we talk about in the show and that we can go take into the classroom or the office or wherever it is that, that we're working in education or just living our lives. Yep. Totally. Uh, real quick, I'll do the, uh, NSO phone hacking one. So this is, uh, kind of a follow up. We had talked about, uh, this Pegasus, uh, malware, uh, which, in- which, uh, interesting is really not the right word, but this was what, um, the Saudi government apparently used to get at Jamal Khashoggi, who, uh, apparently the, uh, the Saudi crown prince ordered to be, you know, killed and dismembered in the, um, in Saudi embassy in Turkey. Um, this is bad stuff. Jur- he was a journalist. Uh, he was a, a journalist for the New York Times. There's a whole lot of journalists who have been targeted by this software. Well, this is an article from TechCrunch on January 9th. Headline, Supreme Court declines to block WhatsApp lawsuit over NSO, NSO phone hacking. And what the uh, NSO group that makes the Pegasus spyware had said was, hey, we were working for government, so you, uh, you can't you know, sue us. According to the article, uh, more than 1,400 devices belonging to journalists, activists, and government officials have been, were compromised by this software. Um, and, and basically, it looks like they will be held criminally liable, at least in the United States, uh, for that. And so um, that is um, WhatsApp spoke. Oh, here, I'll read this. WhatsApp spokesman Carl Wood told TechCrunch that the company was, quote, grateful to see the Supreme Court rejected NSO's baseless petition and that NSO, quote, must be held to account for their unlawful operations. So a lot of different aspects here, right? We have cyber war between all kinds of groups going on today, um, nation states, as well as non-state actors, uh, criminal groups. When an, a group or an individual gets a hold of something called a zero-day exploit, um, there's, a, there's a real incentive for them to hold on to that and not release it. But when they do that, then that vulnerability is out there and can be exploited. But having a government, especially like we know, some, some pretty terrible governments that um, have, have terrible you know, records of human rights abuses, et cetera, having, ha- having a company that can be out there selling a tool like this uh, to be used in, in the way that we saw in the Khashoggi case and others, um, I'm personally you know, happy about this. So I don't know that that's going to affect us. But what does affect us is spam and links. Both my wife and I in the past week have received some very tricky, you know, text messages. She got one just the other day that was from a friend whose parent had also passed away. And the the message was something like, so-and-so just passed away. I think you know them. And then there was this link, you know, and it's really tempting to click on those. In the event that you do or someone you know clicks on one of those links, one of the first things to do is to just change your password. Like if it's Facebook, get that password changed. But folks are going to continue to try to fish us, you know, get us to try to click a link, give away our credentials. Um, I've read multiple things on Facebook from other other people. I have been taken in uh, at different times. They're they're very savvy, and so um, hopefully, I mean, I kind of I think the doctor knife and I are are fairly savvy with all this stuff. And I'll say that if, if I can be taken in, uh, well, I mean, look, uh, who else do you want to, Colin Powell, right? Colin Powell was, was taken in by a phishing attack. There's all kinds of folks who have been compromised. So it's important to do everything we can to keep our passwords secure, talk to students and teachers and others about this. Um, and I think this was a positive development in terms of the, the Pegasus spyware issue. Yep. Do you, you want to do the Twitter one? I do. This is 
another interesting one uh, that has also happened that apparently, according to uh, The Guardian um, on January 5th, that 200 million Twitter users um, uh, uh, had some information about their accounts released. And the reason why it's interesting is because it includes email addresses associated with these 200 million Twitter accounts. And um, the... The reason why that's interesting is because a lot of people are relatively anonymous on Twitter or they set up multiple accounts, maybe on, on one email address and use them for different purposes. And I've, I've been trying to rack my brain. There have been a handful of um, Twitter accounts that uh, I've set up over time for various uh, things, including some jokes and some uh, <laughs> uh, things that I would uh, prefer to remain anonymous on. I don't think anything that would get me in trouble or anything, um, maybe be ever so slightly embarrassing. But the point is, is that that's, you know, pretty, um, uh, uh, pretty significant information uh, that's been released. And again, um, you know, there are lots of ways to uh, cover your tracks in case you do something silly or wrong. Um, uh, but the bottom line is, is that um, if you are um, uh, trying to uh, be incognito on something like a Twitter um, or really any social network, uh, it's probably not good to use your personal email address, especially if that email address is your name, as it is uh, with uh, with both me and Dr. Fryer. So uh, the, the bottom line is, is that uh, uh, be careful. And, you know, you're going to see more of these articles. Uh, I think that, that we're taking security more seriously now than we ever have been on the Internet. And yet things like this are happening on a fairly regular basis. Shout out to two of our live viewers tonight. This is exciting. So shout out to uh, Peggy and Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth just said in the chat that she got a fake fraud warning from her credit union on the weekend uh, when the real bank doesn't have customer service to check with. Yes, banking um, and also like Amazon charges and your bank calling you. Uh, one of the things I saw on Facebook this last week um, was a friend who was for quite a while convinced that her bank account had been hacked and she was about to lose the money and they were going to drain the account, et cetera. If you get a phone call or a message from your bank, especially, but if you get a phone call, hang up and call the bank because that was one, that was one of the things that, that tricked me. This was several months ago, shortly after we had moved. Um, you know, it wasn't my bank calling in the case of my friend on Facebook, her bank was not calling her and, a lot of times emotion plays into this. That's a real key thing that folks are trying to do with the weaponization of social media and the way that they're trying to get us to click things and pay attention. And so breathe deep and, and in advance, this is why it's good to, you know, we practice fire drills at school. We do all kinds of emergency procedures so that we will hopefully know what to do. If you get that phone call, thank, thank you, hang up and call the bank. And And when you call them directly, you know, you're going to verify that it's not some Joe Schmo from Belarus who's, you know, trying to trick you. So totally. one more thing I'll toss in here and I'll put it in the show notes. We've mentioned on the show, great website, haveibeenpwned.com. This is Troy Hunt's website. He's a white hat hacker by my, from Microsoft, and he has taken many, many of the dark web available um, hacked databases and he's allowed you to do several different searches, including putting your email address in and seeing the compromised uh, attacks that you've been in, involved in and what specifically has been taken. And I have found that to be a pretty persuasive way to show people of all ages, hey, this is why we need to use unique and different passwords. And this is why you need to make sure that 
you know, you're, you're not repeating a password because once that password is out on the dark web, it can be used and repeated. And that's certainly, you know, in the playbook of bad actors. So, all right. Well, hey, we covered all the security. Um, do you want to cover something else? Uh, maybe a little CES or Google before we go to AI? Sure. Let's uh, do some Google news here and lots of interesting things, of course, going on in Google land. A couple a couple quick hits here. Um, there are a couple articles I want to highlight for those of you looking to purchase Chromebooks. Um, I continue to be very interested in the Chromebook architecture and its its platform because I think it is a if you buy a Chromebook that's not a low end um a Chromebook, um, although I think there's a lot of applications for those as well, it can be a very powerful, uh, what I would consider to be a, um, a power user platform. But I want to share Kevin Tofel's uh, January uh, 2nd, 2023 article on about Chromebooks, about his choices for the 2022 Chromebook of, of the year. And he talks about, um, and he's really interesting too, because he's not, um, he's not, he, he's a player in this space, but he doesn't get, um, uh, all of the um, uh, necessarily of all the, the samples and stuff. So he usually buys these Chromebooks. So he's really vested in all of this. But um, the um, uh, he picked um, well, and I see all the different pieces there um, was the framework the framework Chromebook. And I and I now I remember why I put both these articles in. And um, the framework Chromebook. And I'm not sure if we've talked about framework yet, but framework is a super cool idea. And a lot of uh, tech bigwigs are, have actually um, uh, uh, kind of invested in framework. But framework is a laptop that is essentially a laptop that allows you to update it and change the hardware over time. And it's got a really cool design to it. It, it looks like uh, maybe a little chunkier of a, of a MacBook Air. It's got kind of that silver aluminum look to it. Um, but what's cool about framework laptops is that they have ports on there that you can switch in and out and customize what you want to do in there. And you have access to the insides of it so you can update it to different specs um, or update it over time. And Framework happens to have a Chromebook. It's an official Chromebook that uh, is uh, supported by the Chrome, um, I'm sorry, the, the Chromebook team. Um, but for $999, you can get this pretty nice laptop that has user changeable uh, interfaces on it. So if you don't need an HDMI port, you can pull that out and put a card reader in instead. If you prefer just USB-C ports, you can just put USB-C ports all around instead. And the Windows laptop works the same way. And uh, Framework is starting to really take off. It has a, a lot of really positive reviews. Um, and I think that's a, a, a really interesting piece there. And there's another article uh, from 9to5Google on January 10th um, that uh, basically says that this is the enthusiast Chromebook, right? It not only has um, a decent specs and you can upgrade it to better specs if you like, but for those that are, are truly Chromebook people, and I have to say, I probably am a Chromebook person, right? I've kind of moved back architecture-wise to, to Macworld in the last uh, two years, especially with the availability of the uh, Apple Silicon chips, which are just truly outstanding pieces of hardware. The bottom line is that's what's available there. So are you going to get a, get a framework, you think? Is that on your horizon? It's a thousand bucks. I mean, I don't buy, a th well, I mean, I, I, when I bought my MacBook Air, I, M1, I mean, I didn't even pay a thousand dollars for that. I had a credit. 
Um, I had a credit with, with, I think it was Best Buy, plus I had a coupon, plus I had, um, some Amex points that I used. And I got that down well below 600 bucks, uh, before I purchased that. And, um, and that's, that's something that can easily be your primary or single laptop without a doubt. But I don't know. Every time I read a review, they're super positive. Kevin Toffel has a really good eye for hardware. Almost everything that he's picked as his, his top Chromebook in the last four years is a Chromebook I've either uh, owned at one point, bought and sold, or have been able to use for a day or two, borrowing it from someone else. And they're all outstanding uh, uh, hardware. But yeah, framework super interesting and probably more interesting framework hardware to come. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Oh, I mean, I can do a, a quick one just because <laughs> usually you've got all the Google ones. This is a similar topic though. ZDNet, uh, did the best Chromebooks for work. So, um, they say these are, uh, Acer, Dell, and then they say the Google Pixel Book Go. I don't know that I n- knew about that. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what are, what do you think about Google hardware? Have you laid hands on that one, or do you know anything about that one? I have not, and I'll admit I was really tempted, and I'm honestly surprised I haven't tried to find a used one to pick up. But that's a um, it, that's a very traditional laptop. It has kind of a cool metal case with kind of a, a ridged bottom. That I, I like the look of the hardware, and my understanding is both the keyboard and the trackpad are outstanding on that particular hardware. Yeah. Okay. So a couple other pieces of interesting Google news. Um, this is a, um, a CNET article from December 30th. Uh, Google Voice can now flag suspected spam calls. And the reason why I'm sharing this article on this podcast is because it is a sign that Google is still developing Google Voice. And um, Google Voice has been around for a long time now. And this used to be probably my number one pick for teachers because um, uh, if you get a Google Voice number, which is free, you just take your Google account, go Google Voice, and it creates it for you, you can direct it to your phone. And if you're a teacher, it has the benefit of you know being able to share that number with students and parents, for example, without having to share your personal cell phone number. And when you don't want to use Google Voice, you can simply log off of it for the weekend or if it's the summertime you can just delete the app or log out of 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 that on your account and you don't need to be tethered to a number that you've given out publicly and i've had a google voice number for um well since it it uh, it was originally called grand central was the name of the technology before google purchased it uh it was so interesting in fact all of the the super nerds before lifehacker kind of turned into a, a weird tech blog but all of the old lifehacker writers were super into grand central and then super into google voice and in fact, the other cool thing you can do with Google Voice is that you can put it on an iPad, for example, and then use that effectively as a phone. So it's uh, an incredibly cool piece of technology um, that's available to you. But um, I like the, the sign that Google's still developing this. And if you are a, a Google Voice user, and I know probably hundreds of teachers that, that, that have active Google Voice numbers, know that Google doesn't seem to be giving up on this and is indeed still adding features. When I was the tech director at our former Oklahoma school, uh, we uh, got a new voice over IP phone system. We replaced like a 20-year-old um, you know, analog system. I guess it was a fiber system. But anyway, it wasn't a voice over IP. Uh, wonderful, wonderful tools. Um, I really think that schools should do this for all their teachers. Provide a phone number that is a school number. And 
you know, in some cases, in most cases, teachers had a phone or a shared phone that could actually ring, but we would recommend that teachers just configure that to go straight to voicemail. But if you wanted to, you could configure it to go, you know, to your, your cell phone. So yeah. again, it's a Google voice type function, but what you're saying is great. Google voice is still there. It's still available. Um, you know, in terms of providing phones, it's just, it's really not a good idea. And I need to think about this myself actually, cause I, you know, I need to think about my situation in, in my new teaching situation, uh, because in your signature file, you know, you can list a phone number. A lot of times I'll just do that for the, the whole school. But in terms of parents and stuff like that, it is great for them to be able to have direct contact. Um, I haven't mentioned this on the show, but and now we'll talk about transcription. I have an imposter on TikTok. Um, my uh, our middle daughter informed me about that a week or so, a couple weeks ago, I guess. And I've notified him. It hasn't been taken down. It might be a student. I don't know. I've actually talked about it in class. It's not a malicious, horrible um, account, but it's somebody who's using a different name in my profile picture and a lot of pictures they scraped off my Instagram. Um, and they've got like hundreds of followers. Um, you know, there's all, and, and I will not go into these stories, but I have teaching friends that have been the victims of some very unfortunate and malicious attacks by students who have done some pretty uh, yucky and, and terrible things on social media accounts that have been spoof accounts and just, just bad stuff. So anyway, you never know what's going to happen. Um, all, you know, imposter accounts and things like that really are, you know, completely out of our control. But in terms of your phone number, maintaining control over your personal cell phone number is really important. Not only because you want to limit spam, but also because, you know, I don't know, we could, we could probably have folks share different stories about prank calling and, you know, before texting. I mean, there's been all kinds of things that, you know, young, young students have done at, at sleepovers at other times, you know, with, with teacher phones and, and numbers and stuff like that, home numbers. So protect your cell phone number. Um, another thing to think about is, you know, anytime an email account gets breached or someone's computer gets breached, there's ways that, you know, contacts and things like that are scraped off of those devices. And so the more places that you have your, your cell phone number, you basically, I don't think you really want to give your cell phone number out at all. And I think that's hard, especially with shopping, you know, because like grocery stores, everybody's got frequent shopper. Hey, you're going to save this money. It's, it's hard. Um, and, and I'm doing some of that, you know, but on the other hand, you got to realize that, that the companies in, in our surveillance capitalism dominated attention economy, these companies are, you know, just using our information and selling that. And the cell phone number is like a social security number. And it's really being used as a key field to connect a lot of data. So most of us are probably not going to change our cell numbers. We move to another right. state across the country. Do I want to change my number? No, I don't. If I've got so many different things that rely on it. So, well, and, and I'll also share that, um, you know, I, I carry a couple of different business cards with me and I, you know, have a couple of organizations I work with, including my day job, but I also have a, 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 a what is essentially a calling card. It's just a little a business card that says, uh, Jason Neifer and my Google voice number on it. And that's what I prefer to give people. Um, and I, I mean, and I, I don't ever really turn off my Google voice number. Um, so I don't, I don't have the need to do that, but you know, there are people who'd be like, Hey, can I call you later and we'll get together for dinner? And, um, you know, I prefer to share the Google voice number and it's effectively a phone number for me and I have access to it all the time. Um, and if I ever need to abandon it, I can, it's not a huge deal, but I just think there's a, a lot to that, that having that second phone number and, and being a little more guarded about your personal cell, 
um, is, is pretty important. And by the way, if I ever, um, uh, uh, if I ever get to a point where I'm not, um, uh, or that I need to give up my cell phone number, I have so many things hooked to that that are part of my private life, uh, in regards to accounts and stuff, it would be difficult for me to move those to a new number. So I hope to be stuck with this number for life. In our chat room, Elizabeth Springer uh, notes that two great features for her voice number at school is that all her text messages are backed up to email, um, and she can also schedule the hours she gets messages. Um, I do know that there are some issues with regard to students texting teachers, texting coaches. Um, that was something that we had talked about trying to get a solution for and didn't end up doing that. Um, but some schools and school districts are having solutions and then, you know, having faculty and staff exclusively use that number instead of using personal numbers. And not only can that potentially protect us as teachers and staff members from having that number out there, it can also provide some liability protection um, and, and some legal recourse in the case of the school, you know, to be able to have transcriptions and in, in the same way that uh, a lot of schools will keep, you know, up to, uh, up to five years of of email messages and the Google admin console and any other email platform that you have um, allow administrators to respond to legal inquiries from uh, judges and courts to be able to say, Hey, give me this. And you know, that's, that's why it's also important to remember, even if you're not using any school system, anything that you put, you know, in a text message and probably in pretty much any app, I mean, yes, there's going to be signal and secure messaging apps and things like that, but text messaging is all open right now without encryption. So um, anyway, be aware of the fact that that stuff is, is monitored, is subpoenable. Uh, I don't think anybody listening to the show probably is plotting to do anything illegal. Um, but, you know, there are things that is that are sometimes better to, uh, you know, just just say in person and, and not, you know, fire off an email, uh, fire off a text. These things are practical. And I didn't think we would be talking about phone systems, but, you know. <laughs> There we're, it is. We're getting real practical here. Okay, I think we probably should talk about a little AI. What do you think? Well, it's pretty hard to avoid. So um, I would start off by saying that these conversations keep getting more nuanced. I'm talking with more people about it. Um, I have a couple of, 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 of close buddies from high school that both work in tech that I've been talking to in the background, too. And um, they're pretty blown away by this technology as well. And uh, uh, obviously the implications uh, for their industries and then also my industry is something we've been chatting about quite a bit too. Um, but let's go ahead and go through a couple of articles and see where it leads us. So um, the first one is that, and I know you shared this in the last week too, Wes, but uh, there is a tool now um, powered by AI um, that can, detect AI. And uh, uh, it is was featured um, in an interesting uh, story on NPR um, by Emma Bowman, where she goes through um, the uh, a company that's been built by uh, a gentleman by the name of Edward Tian, who is a, a senior at Princeton University. And he's built an app that attempts to detect a chat GBT, uh, uh, written, uh, uh, pieces. Now, um, the, the part about this that, that's super interesting is that I've actually played with this in the last 24 hours and I, I can't go into the details about what the situation was, but I was looking to try to detect if something was, was indeed, uh, taken care of by, 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 uh, a chat GBT. And this app is called, 
uh, GPT-0. And the idea here is that it's using the same tool to determine um, if it's being used uh, to write something. And um, now it's interesting because now that this thing has is, is been super popular and has been featured um, on CBS and Business Insider and NPR and Yahoo, um, I, I, th- this gentleman's trying to monetize it, which, by the way, smart move, uh, uh, brother. That's a good idea. Um, and, and certainly the way I would go with this as well. And he's, he's looking to uh, maybe sell something um, uh, to schools to help them in um, uh, uh, detecting these technologies. And so I'm on the wait list for that. But he's also got what he's calling GPT-0 Classic, which is a tool um, that you can t- uh, copy and paste um, up to 5,000 characters to try to detect um, if it's been written by AI. And I will tell you, um, uh, my exercise yesterday for this was difficult because I couldn't really wrap my brain around exactly the metrics it was sharing with me. And I know they're explained in some detail in that, that NPR article, but you know, um, I think this is kind of a, a user beware sort of a thing. It doesn't do a very good job of, of, in fact, it does no job of trying to give you a, a clear cut answer to whether something was generated by AI or not in the same way that plagiarism detectors, which range from effective to not very effective, um, are, are, are actually should say pretty effective to not very effective, doesn't provide you a, a great answer either. Um, I've played with a lot of plagiarism detectors. We have some built in um, to our learning management system in my day job experience. Um, but the bottom line is that uh, a lot of things can 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 uh, uh, ring false positives that is not very uh, interesting um, uh, uh, to to pursue un- unless you think through what it's it's telling back to you. So you know the, it's already started, right? A lot of moral panic around AI in schools, and there are tools available, but again, it's it's not as elegant maybe or or as, as clear cut as you might think. Wow. Uh, so uh, Elizabeth said she had this, a similar experience with uh, GPT-0 this week as well. And uh, Peggy um, mentions Matt Miller, Ditch That Textbook's uh, website, which is just ditchthattextbook.com slash AI um, as an informative article and blog post. Um, I had a, vi- a visit with one of our administrators today, and we're going to be having an upcoming faculty meeting where we'll talk about this. Um, there are school systems now that have, have blocked this entirely. Um, this has important implications for for honor codes, if you've got an honor code, you know, at your school, uh, talking about plagiarism, you know, what does plagiarism uh, look like when we have access to a tool like this? Now, something that may happen, I don't know if it will or not, but right now, this is all free. I was listening, I think, to an NPR uh, yesterday or the day before that was saying, you know, these companies need to find ways to monetize. It's been very, very expensive to develop these tools. Uh, sadly, the... <laughs> uh, economic model or whatever for, for these is, is pretty much been, you know, marketing and to, to do better marketing. We'll, we'll get into some other articles. There's other use cases that, that people are, are, are uh, turning to already to use these tools as far as m- uh, making money. Um, the author that I was listening to on the podcast, and I'll have to go back and find it, was talking about CERN and how, you know, we might not just want to have companies that are for profit uh, seeking, and I don't know if OpenAI is actually for profit, but there's tons of money, that millions of dollars that Microsoft and other companies and Google have poured in to it as far as developing it. Um, you know, we may want to have a, a separate AI developed that's not, you know, 
being monetized in the same way. But anyway, we've got to figure out what does assessment, what does education, uh, what does writing look, you know, what does it look like to be doing these things in an AI world? And, and these are questions that no one has a, a clear cut answer to. And as you point out, Jason, there's a lot of moral panic. That's a good way to put it. Um, and as we've talked about on the show, I think it's it's really incumbent upon us. We have a responsibility to kind of move beyond the moral panic because that's the easy headline. That's sort of the easy thing to to say with this is, oh, my gosh, it's it's terrible. Look at this. All the kids are going to be able to cheat and to think, well, what are all the different creative ways that this can be used? And what are the ways that we're assessing student skills and, and how might that impact us? But that's going to look different in uh, an inclusively online setting like like you're in, Jason, you know, versus teachers that are more face-to-face and could have the so-called luxury of, you know, having students do writing in front of them with paper and pencil. I'm sure that is going to be a response in, in some classrooms, but I think we definitely need to find digital ways to respond, and it's an open question about how we're going to do that. Yep, absolutely. Um, let's see. Let me do the malware one. Can I do that one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Ars Technica on January 6th reports that ChatGPT is enabling script kitties to write functional malware. So some little vocabulary here. Um, a script kitty is somebody who may not have a great deal of coding skill themselves, but they can go to Google, they can possibly be on the dark web or, or other places, and they can copy scripts that are created by other people. One of the crazy things, and, and I, we don't have it published yet, but you can go back in the show notes and take a look. Um, Jason shared uh, some really excellent links to some sophisticated, complex queries that you can use for ChatGPT. And I use some of these tonight. Actually, I will talk about this in the Geek of the Week. Um, ended up summarizing a past show. Uh, but, you know, you can go far beyond, you know, write me an essay about Romeo and Juliet explaining, you know, the key points of, of uh, the conflict or, or whatever. Um, so... We can actually have code written by the program. And what we have to remember is this, the ChatGPT has ingested just millions and millions of pages and, and lines of not only text, but also code. And so some of that code is malware and there's all kinds of, of implications here. So anyway, um, <laughs> malware has been a problem before. Anytime you get a technology that's going to further amplify things, it does tend to make it worse. So, yes, probably on the on the horizon, on a phone and laptop and computer near you, you know, worse spam issues, worse malware issues, social engineering that's going to be more targeted, um, and pop, and you know, maybe there's going to be more uh, script kitties and uh, you know juvenile criminals that are going to be able to to get into the act here. But I would here's the educational implication of this is I think we need to continue to talk to students about how important it is that we use our, our technology skills for good and, and not for ill. Sometimes people have a really bad idea of, of hackers, like everything that's a hack is 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 bad. You know, if you ever have a chance to, to watch a Steve Wozniak video or it'd be wonderful to get to hear him talk in person, you know, Woz was and still is a hacker, but he's a, a white hat hacker. Uh, Troy Hunt that runs the Have I Been Pwned website is a white hat hacker. We've got a lot of people that are that are working to protect us as individuals and in, as organizations and as a society and community. So um, Peggy's asking, what would motivate students to want to create malware on teacher sites? I mean, unfortunately, trolls, and I'm not going to pretend to understand all the psychology, but 
there are large numbers of people that just like to do malicious things to harm others and to laugh about it and to get together in their community and, um, and laugh about it and, and, uh, you know, show off that, that they've been able to, to do terrible things. And that's something that has been happening for quite a while, um, in different parts of the internet. And we hear about that sometimes in mainstream media, um, articles, but, um, you know, unfortunately, whether it's because they, you know, just don't like that teacher or something the teacher, the teacher did. Um, there's a variety of reasons, but yeah, students, students can, can do things that are harmful, um, for teachers professionally in terms of, of, uh, reputation, um, with social media. And, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of consequences, it, it depends on the legality if, if something illegal has been done and, and the teacher wants to take steps and hopefully the school is going to stand up for it. From a school law standpoint, a lot of that comes down to the perception of whether a disruption has happened at school. Uh, certainly that's true for public schools. Private schools can have a larger latitude, in my experience, than public schools um, to take action sometimes when things are done at home with, you know, student or family owned devices and not school owned devices. But it is tricky. These are the reasons why we need administrators to take courses on, you know, legal issues and, um, it's, it's complicated and difficult and um, it's not going to get any simpler anytime soon. And then a couple uh, uh, things that I wanted to share uh, also relate to article wise. And then I, I, I want to kind of talk about how uh, cool some of the stuff is in a different way. Uh, the, the, the first one is I don't really have an article for this, although I've, I've seen four of them in the last 24 hours, but Microsoft has invested a billion dollars in, in chat AI. They have a lot of money in this and uh, it's clear to me, especially if this company ends up being worth $28 billion, which is the number I've heard tossed around in the last week about what this company might be, be valued at, uh, Microsoft's going to make it, make bank from this. But they're also licensing this technology, uh, and, um, they are going to integrate it directly into Word, PowerPoint, and the Bing search engine. Right. And um, and I think next, Wes, you might want to go to that uh, New York Times article about uh, the code red over at Google. But um, first of all, I have to be clear. I don't like the Bing search engine. I don't think it's of, of, of much value. I think it's it's got extra cruft on there that I don't appreciate. But having AI plugged into a search engine is a game changer. And in all the ways that you can imagine adding new dimensions to search for a moment, um, and, and, uh, we're going to have some examples in a couple of minutes of ways that you can ask, um, uh, 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 AI to kind of mimic another brain or another point of view or another perspective. But imagine for a moment, you know, you tell a search engine that I'm looking for information, um, uh, about, uh, downtown Tokyo as a tourist, right? Or I'm looking for information, um, uh, on the political situation in Brazil as an investor, right? Like you could start to, th and it doesn't take long to add all these new dimensions into the technology that in my mind blows us up into something really extraordinary. And um, uh, uh, I think, uh, or I'm sorry, I think Microsoft's being very savvy about this. Um, and they're certainly um, uh, uh, doing some interesting uh, things with, with the technology. Um, and, and Wes, um, I didn't see this article uh, until you posted in here. Um, uh, Microsoft also can, can mimic your voice after three seconds of audio? Yeah, this is Ars Technica on January 9th. I shared this today, today with my students. 
uh, I mentioned this on the show. I feel like I've been an evangelist for how AI is going to change the world, you know, for the last three years. And in the last two months, things have happened that have just been absolutely hair raising. Um, in the 2019 series, uh, the age of AI that is narrated by Robert Downey Jr. And I'll drop that link in. Um, that is one that I have been sharing with my students as a wonder link, um, the past several years. He has in the first episode, uh, a discussion with Will I Am, who is an, uh, an artist and musician and, you know, had the black eyed peas and everything. And they took just t- tons and tons of time to have Will I Am, uh, go in and record his voice to try to create an avatar of him. And we've heard this about deep fake videos, right? That for, you know, presidents and other politicians and celebrities and people that have a lot of recorded audio about them, um, it will be and is easier for folks to create a deep fake video that not only has their voice, but it also has their face and and it can be a a trick. Uh, We saw one with Tom Cruise, I think maybe six to 12 months ago or something like that. So this article though is saying, with only three seconds of audio, its AI is able to come up with a fairly reasonable replication, including emotional tone and the acoustic environment of whoever's voice you're giving to it. And so, again, media literacy, the need for us to interrogate sources, this I'm, I'm honestly surprised it didn't have a bigger impact in our last election cycle in the United States. <clears throat> These tools <coughs> are becoming widespread. Um, you know, the, the, I was listening to an article this last week that was talking about the millions of dollars that Russia spent creating content in the 2016 campaign, um, to, um, you know, try and harm candidates and help candidates and things like that. And now those tools are basically free through these AI tools that, like you said, can create a scenario, you know, Take the perspective of this person or your your audience is this person. I want you to advertise to them. It's crazy how specific it can be and then how immediately effective and responsive the, the chat GPT engine is in, in generating those. So um, that was pretty, pretty shocking. And then that New York Times article that you mentioned at the top, um, this was uh, this is a gift link. So you don't have to log in to get this. But this was uh, December 21st and the headline from the Times is a new chatbot is a code red for Google's search business. And so people are talking about the degree to which, you know, search engines and people are going to be turning to these tools um, instead of a traditional search engine. And what some folks are saying we can expect pretty soon is we'll probably see some some AI generated results as well as a list of websites um, these kinds of things are going to be integrated into search. And to your point, yes, Microsoft's a huge investor in open AI. Um, they're going to be reaping those benefits in their products and in, also in their search tools. It'll be really interesting to see if this does make Bing better because my very cursory explorations and trials with Bing were so bad. I was like, why would I ever want to use this? I'm not going to mess with, you know, mess, mess with this any, anymore. Um, so Google is very aware of the quote threat. Of course, they're also developing their own um, chat tools. And so I don't see it necessarily, uh, you know, re- replacing search, but I think most teachers and certainly most educational technology folks would agree that search skills are essential. And it's really important to learn uh, about how the search engine works, you know, knowing about advertising links versus non-advertising links and, and how you can use some advanced search features, which Google has now 
you know, built into some of their their clickable tools, their GUI tools. You don't have to, you know, use a little hyphen in front of a word to eliminate it. You know, there's there's other ways that you can do that. I wonder, Jason, if utilizing a an AI tool like ChatGPT is going to become an essential thing that we do in media literacy, computer applications, introduction to computers classes. I mean, I, I think I could, I could see that right now. It's like, what does this mean? And we're just kind of playing with it, but maybe being able to use it effectively in the same way that we try to use search engines effectively to, you know, filter and, and generate better results will be a skill that we try to help, you know, students cultivate because the thing we I've been saying for years, and I think it's true, is that AI is going to have uh, an impact and in many cases, a dramatic impact in basically jo- every every job and every career field and almost every aspect of our lives. That's a pretty big claim, but I kind of buy that at this point. Yeah. Well, and um, the bottom line is, is that this technology has really only been in the hands of uh, especially the the third version of this, and apparently the fourth version, which is going to be out in a couple of months, has massive databases uh, that are going to be part of this. And I was going to post a couple links to some of that discussion on Twitter, but um, uh, there is some disagreement about the size of the next database that the the the, the ingestion uh, uh, engine that pulled in information from various sources to be able to do that. But I, I've I've heard rumors of things like. Um, uh, you're going to be able to uh, uh, get a um, 60,000 word novel by just suggesting a general premise. And, you know, there's a lot of ways in which that blows up a lot of stuff. Right. And, and you know, uh, one thing I would note is that this is not the end of unique creation. It can't be in part because. The bottom line is that, um, you know, uh, if we seal off all human knowledge in 2023 and say we're going to generate everything else based on that, it's hard to innovate in that way. We're still going to have to need or we're still going to have to need. We still need uh, creative uh, uh, solutions uh, uh, to 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 problems. And we're going to have to think outside the box. And if the box is what. ChatGPT is pulling from version 9, 10, 15, 20, 244 in the future, um, you know, I'm sure the technology will get better and, and, and adopt a, a, what we might perceive as creativity. But the bottom line is there's still plenty of, of fodder in the world uh, for, for, for thinking. We still have to find what those balances look like. Um, but that's kind of how I perceive that. So we pull a couple things out of the chat. Uh, Peggy earlier in the show had uh, shared a link to the slideshow by Tori Trust that's about ChatGPT, and so uh, we'll try to pull that link into the show notes when we create that. Um, actually, the transcript tool I'm going to talk about for the Geek of the Week will help with that. Um, Elizabeth says that she heard hears or read <clears throat> that it'll be able to complete tasks uh, like negotiating a better credit card rate. And Jason, isn't that the tool trim that you've shared before on the show? Like it will do that now? Yes. Um, and my understanding is they do use some AI already to be able to do that. And I love trim. Um, and in fact, it's been a, a critical part. Um, I'm probably saving now twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a year by just using trim. Um, on some various bills, including my, um, uh, including my, uh, um, my uh, cable bill. 
And so, yeah, it's asktrim.com. I got that uh, in the show notes. Um, Peggy also noted that she's heard that TikTok is a big search engine. And I mentioned that, and I went back to look in episode 273, which we uh, titled, I think, TikTok for News. We talked about how there are studies now showing for Gen Z, whatever that is, anyway, those younger kids, uh, that now the number one news source for that generation is TikTok. Um, which is huge, which again is something that we may not be talking about in school and we definitely need to. And so, um, you know, that's, there are ways that we need to bring these conversations back into the classroom, you know, with teachers. Um, and certainly what we're talking about as far as, you know, AI and, and chat GPT, that is, is definitely something that I think is, is, is even more in our face than a lot of these other things. But um, let me do one more quick AI one. Uh, this is ours. I'm like becoming the Ars Technica guy, but uh, I like that source. Ars Technica on January 10th. Controversy erupts over non-consensual AI mental health experiment. This is fascinating. Now, this is with GPT-3, uh, which was before chat GPT. Um, but basically, there was there's a website called Coco, uh, which is a website that provides mental health counseling. Well, they used an AI tool to provide counseling for over 4,000 people without providing informed consent and allowing those folks to know. And the people had reported, you know, pretty good satisfaction with what they were getting until they learned that it was an AI that was generating it. So I think these lines are going to continue to be blurred as far as who we're interacting with. I mean, we interact with with bots and, and robots. I mean, Madam A and the Google Assistant, you know, we're, we're doing that all the time, but there's other ways that we're interacting with programs and algorithms, companies are going to continue to explore this. There's going to be some financial savings that they're going to realize. I think we're going to have some positive in schools, right? I think I've told the story before about, you know, the early 2000s when I wrote these grants for a couple of West Texas schools to participate in the Texas Immersion Pilot Program or the TechStip Program. And if you went with Apple, you got a curriculum package and they had this wonderful writing tool called My Access Writing, which used at the time very advanced algorithms to be able to analyze student writing and provide feedback. Think about what writing will look like when ChatGPT is able to analyze student writing and provide feedback. I mean, there are systems like that today. Well, well ChatGPT can do that now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you put it, copy and paste an essay in. In fact, I've done, well, okay, so I know we're at the top of the hour, Wes, but I'd really like to spend a couple minutes talking about Go for the, it. what we've experimented in the last, in the last yes. week in yes. AI. Yes. So that's, that's an example. I copied and pasted uh, 10 paragraphs from my dissertation and I said, please evaluate this dissertation introduction, right? And tell me, give me suggestions on improving it Gosh. and give me a percentage grade, okay? What? So, uh, and it did. It gave me a 95% um, on that. So then I said, please evaluate these 10 paragraphs from a dissertation. Would you grant me a doctorate? And it gave me the same or similar feedback and similar concerns, although worded differently. And it said, yes, I would vote um, to to pass this person to give them a doctorate. OK, but let me let me let me take this further. Um, uh, I, I got into a kick over the weekend, which was to ask it to write a modern plot line for a vintage television show. 
and I did the Brady Bunch, and I did uh, Barney Miller, and I did uh, Friends, and I did Seinfeld, and I also did Gilligan's Island. So I said, write me a modern plot line for Gilligan's Island, and it did. And it was hilarious because everyone on Gilligan's Island had social media, so why they were stuck on Gilligan's Island still is beyond me, except, except... Gilligan had a video go viral, and that's why they were rescued. They couldn't get rescued until Gilligan had social media that went viral, right? And that that's that's mind blowing to me, right? Like it understood Gilligan's Island enough that it could write. I mean, it even had the little picadillos of the individual characters, but it utilized social media context for those characters. So I've done a number of searches with my students. One of the thing, and I've done them on my own too with ChatGPT. Um, one of the things it can do is write something like a screenplay. So we did um, a screenplay with Batman and uh, Spider-Man where they get into a fight and it totally writes it like a script and, and it, you know, finished it up in, you know, several, several pages. But in the process of doing that, I've, it's a new semester. I've got a new, new uh, group of students. Uh, one of my students you know, kind of back and forth, we were talking and I mentioned, you know, I like puppets and puppet shows. And we came up with this idea. I think we're going to do this. You, we could have ChatGPT write some short scripts with characters or themes or whatever that we want. And then we might create little puppet shows, you know, using that kind of a script. But um, I don't, the, I'll have to find the podcast I listened to, but it had been, it was basically saying, hey, this is just a fill in the blank. It's word prediction. It's just like autocomplete. I think this is a good way for us to think about the challenge this poses to us, because if the assessments and activities we're providing for students in the classroom really kind of amount to a fill in the blank activity, like I know what this essay about of mice and men should look like. I'm just seeing if you're going to be able to give it to me the way I know it should be constructed. Maybe we need to re... Uh, reconstitute or, or reimagine what that assessment or that activity could look like. But I really, um, I don't think it's just fill in the blank when it comes to some of that creative kind of stuff, like you're talking about, take on this persona, have this perspective, do this from the, from the standpoint of this audience, role play this. Man, that is so different than what we might just have, have Google searched. Well, and I mean, I stole this one earlier today. Um, pretend to have an IQ of 70. Explain why I should take an online course. And then I said, pretend to have an IQ of 200. Explain why I should take an online course. And it totally had different answers. Now, it's more nuanced than the tweet I saw about this because it's added some context. As an AI, I do not have an IQ or any human capabilities characteristics, so I cannot pretend to be a person with an IQ of 200. However, I can provide you some information that could be helpful to someone with a high cognitive ability. Having an IQ of 200 does not mean one is infallible and have all the knowledge, but rather it's an indication of above average intellectual ability. And then explains exactly that in a very different context, right? And I think that that that's insane. And then Wes, I know that you had tried out the pretend you're a debate coach persona and evaluated something. Well, um, you and I both coached debate before. We're both former competitive debaters, high school and college debaters. Um, so I typed in the, the, um, the 2002 uh, policy debate topic. I said, what possible affirmative cases uh, uh, would exist for, for the policy debate topic resolve that the United States federal government should substantially increase public health services for mental health care in the United States. It named 
five cases and it's not case like it like it, it's talking to me like I'm a debater but then best part is then the next question is I said which is the best case on that list and it said you know it's kind of difficult to say which one is quote unquote best but and then it told me it thought that access to care and economic impact cases have strong potential the first case provides a clear and easy to understand solution for a widely acknowledged problem. The shortage of mental health care providers. The second case, economic impact, is also quite powerful as it can appeal to, to decision makers by showing a clear benefit to society as a whole. And again, I mean, you know, debate coaching is a pretty narrow field, right? On a lot of debate coaches in the world, not a lot of people that, that competed in both high school and college as, as both of us have. It, it's a relatively small field. And yet it's giving what I would consider to be pretty decent expert advice um, uh, 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 as, as, as part of this process. And again, it's just, it's endless. So I'll say a couple things about that. Number one, one of my stories is <laughs> when I was in high school, I just, I just debated uh, one year in high school in Kansas. It's only the fall. Um, our topic was political stability in Latin America. So <clears throat> the scenario there was take on the role of the debate coach once you prepare my team. And so my second prompt was this is the topic. The, the United States government should, um, you know, enact policies to increase political stability in Latin America. What should my by debaters know. In fact, I misspelled the word debaters, but that didn't, you know, rattle chat GPT at all. The advice was outstanding. I mean, if I was going to use that with an actual debate team to make a plan for these are the kinds of things we're going to research. These are the kinds of practices we're going to have. I mean, it was absolutely spot on. And again, because I have content knowledge in this area, I'm able to assess, you know, how valid this is. The pod, I'll get this podcast and put it in that I just listened to. I think it was, I think it was an Ezra Klein, but no, it was either Ezra Klein or um, Vox, uh, Vox Conversations. But this particular person was talking about truth and reliability and that, and but see, basically it was a call for sentience. You know, the, the complaint is ChatGPT doesn't know what is truth, but like, that's a very human thing. I don't know. There's, there's some, there's some philosophy that, that you, you get to with this. Um, or something else I want to say, but let me give voice to, to Peggy. She's saying she feels similar to the way when she first learned about the internet and that she could access for free information all over, right? That's just a really, really big deal. Um, Elizabeth says that MLA and others have formats now for citing text generated by AI. That's an interesting academic integrity practice. I'm, thank you, Elizabeth, for saying that because again, when it comes to honor code, I think we need as teachers and administrators in schools to, to, to let the students know that we know. Right. We, we know the tool is there and we know this capabilities here. Talking about citation is a step in the right direction. And just as we have students use Google and many students will use Wikipedia, hopefully as a, as a launch pad and a starting point into their research. Um, and generally, we're not going to cite Wikipedia as a source, but like being able to figure out how we will utilize this tool, engage with it, and then how do we create academic work that is honest? Um, I think that's a, a pretty important question for us to yeah. try to figure out. I think it is too. Well, okay. guys, it's, it's eight minutes after. Luckily, your Geek of the Week um, is also related to this. So why don't you tell us about this amazing, crazy thing? Okay, so I have mentioned on the show before, it's called youtubetranscript.com. Uh, in fact, I would, I didn't use ChatGPT, uh, night before last or whatever to do it. I want, I said, 
ooh, I wonder if there's a tool out there that could generate the summaries of our show, which I think I usually spend somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes to, to generate those. And I found youtubetranscript.com. What's amazing is just take the URL of a YouTube um, video, put it in there. Peggy, you'll remember back in the K-12 online days when we were doing transcriptions using, was it dots? It wasn't dot sub. Was it dot sub? It was dot sub. It, it was dot sub. Yeah. And we were like, we had some Spanish ones going and all this. Like the quality of this, it, it pronounces, by the way, chat GPT, attention. My first name is spelled W-E-S, not W-E-S-T. It spells my name West, but the accuracy is pretty incredible. And what's phenomenal about this is it generates this whole transcript, fully text searchable, and then you can click on that and go to that point. So when Jason and I talk about a certain providence in Western China that is very politically sensitive, if we do say that and it's spelled correctly, you know, it's it makes this idea of a video and transcription and accessibility I mean, it's very exciting from an accessibility standpoint for any of us that have, have worked in accessibility. Okay, let's take it one step further, shall we? Uh, YouTube summary with ChatGPT. Um, a young man, and I say that because I've seen his video, has created a free Google extension that basically facilitates the process of taking that transcript straight out of Google, uh, sorry, straight out of YouTube, and then generating a summary right within ChatGPT. So you got to be logged into ChatGPT, but when you install this, and I just played with this tonight, uh, you have a little bar that appears on the right uh, side column of your YouTube video above all the related videos. You click on that, you can go to the comments, but there's a little button for uh, OpenAI for ChatGPT. Click on it, boom, you're over there on a summary. And I did one for our last episode, and it was pretty freaking good. So I think I'm going to do that for the next couple episodes. I think I'll edit them, but this is an example of assisted, you know, AI um, empowered work, right? Because rather than just write the whole uh, summary from scratch, I'm going to use ChatGPT to generate a summary that I will then, you know, tweak and massage and then be able to produce faster. And I'll reclaim some time in my day. That's pretty cool. Mine is not nearly as cool as that, but uh, I've been playing around with a new search engine. It's called Neva, N-E-E-V-A, and it is uh, kind of a, a, a search engine that promises not to track you um, and, and, and also doesn't offer advertising. The search engine itself is free, but the reason why it's interesting to me is because it, it allows you to um, actually um, – uh, buy uh, or, or pay for the search engine. And what pay does is it gets you um, um, certain benefits, uh, including um, uh, the ability to um, uh, have unlimited ad free, ad free searches um, and also uh, uh, have uh, the premium on, on multiple devices. So it, it also has a built-in uh, VPN as well. So it's called Neva, Neva.com. I played with it. It's actually not a bad search engine. That's the key piece for me with a search engine is that even if it's private, it has to still be a good search engine, and Neva is exactly that. So, uh, Wes, where can people find you on the internets? You can go to westfriar.com slash after and get links to my Mastodon on Twitter. I'm still cross-posting things to Twitter, but I am 99% sure that I'm in a transition to abandoning Twitter entirely and going all to Mastodon. I'll still use Facebook, but all of my links are at westfriar.com slash after. How about you? Um, I am still on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Mastodon as well, but uh, Tech Savvy Teach is where you can find me for right now on the Twitters. But this here um, is not the AI show. It is the EdTech Situation Room. We're a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. 
Eastern Standard Time, and also in the middle of the night if you happen to be joining us from Western Europe. If you can't join us live, although I wish you would, thank you to our live viewers tonight. You can always go to where finer podcasts are aggregated, download the latest episode. You can go to our website, edtechsr.com, download a tiny MP3, or you can go to YouTube or Facebook and watch the archive live versions of this show. We hope you have a great week. Uh, Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night.